Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Jonathan Cole. Based in Calgary, Jonathan is a consultant and product manager who specializes in applications for smartphones, Internet of Things devices and wearables, as well as a popular conference speaker and writer. You can follow him on Twitter at Jonathan underscore Cole, that's K-O-H-L, and check out his website at K-O-H-L.ca. Jonathan, Jonathan is the author of the LeanPub book, Tap into Mobile Application Design. In the book, Jonathan covers a lot of ground in mobile app design with the aim of helping you create an engaging app that people will want to use and crucially won't want to delete. In this interview, we're going to talk about Jonathan's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published author. So thank you very much, Jonathan, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Lynn. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into the world of mobile app testing and design. Uh, origin story. Well, I was um, in university and at University of Lethbridge, south of here, where I grew up, south of Calgary, as you mentioned, uh, where I'm currently at. And I was kind of on my way to law school and got lost on the way. Um, there was enormous demand for computer science, and I never really thought I was good at computers and you know I didn't wasn't that good at math and I knew you needed to do well in logic to do well on your LSAT and things like that for law school so I started taking philosophy and logic courses and um, I was studying some really deep stuff on Bayes theorem and my prof said I can't help you anymore why don't you go talk to Dr. So-and-so Dr. Cowan he's math guy I'm like oh yeah I teaches my linear algebra class. So I went and talked to Dr. Cowan and he said, what are you doing with this baby logic? Everything is getting dumped into computer science. I said, well, I'm not very good. And he's like, well, those, these, you know, these are problems that can be solved. So why don't you think about it? And in the meantime, I was studying data general in another class and reading Soul of a New Machine. And as you know, a young man around 20, the work hard, play hard culture really appealed to me and was, you know, a little bit of a wild west kind of thinking, you know, not sort of a stuffy corporate environment. So I started taking some courses and almost immediately got job offers from companies that were just desperate for help. So I ended up taking a co-op work term at a company here in Calgary and I just loved it. It's like, this is for me. I love everything about software development and you know, all the stuff about market and customers and users and then the technical and I got really obsessed with uh, the Unix operating system and kind of specialized with that and we also work with mainframes and you kind of had to apprentice with someone it's not like now where you can read all these things there was kind of like multiple schools of thought and you picked one person and they were your guru and so I had this really varied experience. And of course, at that time, since the late 90s, the web was really taking off and e-commerce and things like that. So I found myself by day working as a co-op work term student in quality assurance, and by night kind of doing anything for an e-commerce startup. And when everything kind of fell apart in 2001 with the dot-com crash, I had this sort of like, okay, I have a broad base of training and I'm out of work and what should I do? And did some navel gazing and decided I really want to do software development work. I want to work on products in particular. And so I sort of stuck with that for a number of years and then became a consultant. And I became quite well known in the quality software testing world. Um, as a consultant, and I wrote the book uh, Tap into Software Application Testing, 
or sorry, tap into mobile application testing. And that just kind of addressed a, a gap. At the time, there was a lot out there about sort of earlier mobile phones, um, but there wasn't anyone really talking about what to do with smartphones, which really kind of combined a lot of technologies. And so I, it was a, kind of a big surprise. I was doing a keynote at a conference in California and I announced that you know, I have my first version of this book on LeanPub and I created a QR code they set up at a conference table and people started downloading it like crazy. And then I started getting calls from all over the world. Can you come help us? And that uh, kicked off a couple of years of consulting with mobile. But what a lot of people didn't know at the time was I was trying to get out of software testing and switch careers. And a lot of my work wasn't really sort of typical QA. It was very product focused. And so I took some time off and did some navel gazing. And, you know, do I want to go to law school? <laughs> scratch that itch I, itch I never scratched. Or I want to do something else. And I came to the conclusion, you know, I really want to do this. This is what I'm built for. I love identifying and solving problems in the computer science world, you know, the app development world. That's really for me. So I started to focus on product management and um, mostly to begin with, because you can kind of make your own role out of it. And it covers off all the things that I like to do, you know, looking at product marketing and market intelligence and um, looking at product strategy and then the product development, software development part I was really familiar with. And then life cycle management, what do we do next? How do we manage what we have or what do we build next? And, depending on the project or the timing, I can kind of focus differently in each of those four areas. And so that really kind of took a hold and um, kind of started to take off on me. But then my health uh, reared its ugly head, I guess you could say, and ended up with two extremely serious health issues. So now while I do a bit of product management work and consulting, it's mostly remote consults because I'm disabled right now and doing a lot of rehab to try to get back where I can work um, on projects and things like that. But right now I'm mostly doing advisory for short-term things, still keeping my oar in and um, staying up to date with the latest JavaScript framework <laughs> or whatever else is new. Plus, you know, the, the forces in the market and things like that are especially fascinating right now. So my origin, you know, kind of dragged into it because it looked interesting and then I've had a couple of times where I well, do I want to start over but came to the conclusion that no this is this is where I want to be if I was independently wealthy and could do anything that I want I'd get up in the morning and I'd want to do what I do. Thanks very much for sharing that really great story. Um, it's it's interesting you talk about keeping your aura and I think, I mean, you might be a little bit modest there that you've just written this sort of 600 page, really amazing book about, about mobile app design, which is uh, more than keeping your, your rowing for, for other people as well. And we'll get to that in a little bit, but um, I just wanted to ask you a question. So you mentioned you're, you're, you're from Calgary. Um, I'm a, I'm a prairie guy myself. I'm from Saskatchewan and my parents have lived in Calgary for the last 25 years. So I could maybe answer this question a little bit myself, but you would know a lot better than me. Um, and this is a question I ask of guests all around the world. What's what's the tech scene like in Calgary these days? It's variable. Um, it's not as good as when I started, but we've had a bit of growth lately that's making things more interesting. But Alberta has a really big problem with capitalization of software projects. 
So there's a little bit of feast and famine, and then we never really quite realize what we could here because oil prices go up or some, you know, something like that, and the money flees to, to oil and gas because that's the big thing in the province. But we're known kind of as this oil and gas center, but there's so much more, and a lot of it is because Calgary draws in all these people. Often people will come here because, you know, from everywhere in the world, you know, maybe they're a physicist or, uh, you know, in some technical role. And then people see the sort of ossified world of, of, of energy and go, oh, let's do something new. And there's a real kind of maverick kind of um, way of doing things that's really accepted here because of that industry. And so a lot of software companies get off the ground and they're adjacent to oil and gas or oil and gas people get together and do something completely different. But the missing piece there is that funding model. We don't fund as well as places like in uh, Vancouver, Toronto and things like that. And so it's variable. And I would say we're definitely in an uptick now. Um, it's definitely better than it has been. But when I first came here, it was crazy with um, I would go to other places and well, we're hearing all these great things about Calgary, but um, I think with the, um, oh, there was a huge amount of mergers and acquisitions. And so a lot of small kind of scrappy Calgary companies got bought up by these giants and they would, they're less interested in the innovation there. So you're not getting as much of the oil and gas innovation money. And then the capitalization um, for regular projects, just you get it off the ground and it kind of dies a little bit. So um, we're, we're, there's a lot of um, unrealized talent here, but there is a lot of talent. So um, I think that you know, we can't stay like this forever. And it's a problem a lot of people here locally have been working on. So I, I expect great things <laughs> in Calgary over the years on the software front. Um, it's it's interesting actually you mentioned so there's there's you know these this huge huge industry oil and gas in, in Alberta which means there's a lot of money around and there's lots of ups and downs in places where there's lots of people with lots of money um, there's lots of people who want to make apps sometimes um, who who you know have a great idea and have some money and want to do it and I've got a question I just did this sort of a, a bit of a selfish question I guess because I'm just very curious about the work as a as a consultant that you've done in the past but what do you do if someone comes to you with a terrible idea. Well, that's extremely common because the people who can capitalize tend to be the ones with the very, you know, sort of rearward looking old tech or, you know, a lot of bad ideas. And a lot of people who've made a lot of money aren't used to people challenging them. So they come up with an idea and they tell their friends and no one wants to tell them that the emperor has no clothes. And so they come to me and... Um, there's a lot of really bad ideas that have a lot of funding and there's a lot of world beating ideas that die on the vine because you know you have some nerdy guy like me who's hyper focused on this thing and that doesn't resonate with the with the lenders or the you know the investor types whereas the the people who already have a lot of money have the credibility there so it's it's almost an inverse relationship there are some who um have pretty good ideas um and then some of them are bad and they can be, um, you know, I work with them bluntly and gently to, especially on the market intelligence side to, okay, we, you know, there's a, this is a really good aspect and have you considered doing X or Y? And so the first thing I really need to do is to determine, is this a, just a pure vanity project? 
and they're not going to take any feedback and they're going to dump a bunch of money in to a certain point and then you know so you're going to be working for a low wage on a shoestring with no one listening to you and then have it get cancelled when their financial advisor has a fit or is it you know is their ego wrapped up in it which it needs to be to take a product from concept to market but are they willing to take feedback and look at evidence and pivot a little bit um, and so that's a big test there and, and you kind of have to just do it you have some tough meetings um, you see how they react you see how they come back um, but sometimes like i had a i had one that was frighteningly illegal and um, it violated, they wanted to use multiple APIs. It violated every API. Um, and would, if you try to do what they did, you would get banned from ever developing for Apple or Amazon or you know, any of the big players. The, there's consumer protection laws, privacy laws, like there's no jurisdiction in which you could roll this out. And you know, I, had to, I had to get legal advice and you know, well, this is where we're at and you just can't move forward with this, but the kernel of the idea is good, but you're gonna really need to go back to the drawing board. And they basically said, no, no, we wanna move forward. And I don't know, I guess enough people told them that they couldn't do it, so they didn't do it. But, um, and then a lot of times you end up with, used to happen a lot if I was out anywhere, I would get accosted almost every coffee break or lunch break or something, someone would come up to me lay people that were you know not in the industry oh, I have this idea and what do I need to do and I'm not the develop an app the easy way I'm a develop an app the hard way because I've been all around the world helping companies and I see the horrible things that can go wrong and the harm that can be done to people um, and you know you can't just sit there in your basement and crank out an app that's going to hit all the high notes you might be able to, and, and then survive like you may be able to come up with an initial concept and prove the concept and then move forward but there's a lot of work and especially now as we interact with multiple systems and there's a lot of legislative things a lot of upheaval in society right now there's a lot of things you kind of have to get right um, as you said so that you don't create an app that people are going to delete yeah, it's um, it's it's really interesting. Um, the uh, you know, one when people try to propose doing bad things, one thing if you've got any experience at all, you really want to say is um, you're gonna get found out. Like you will, you will get found out eventually. Um, and uh, so you know, you're, it's it's probably a bad business decision in the end if that if that's all that you can't all that the person has in their kind of spirit for you to appeal to. There's at least that, you know, this is, this is impractical in the long run, but um, I actually, that I'm really, really glad you brought that up because as I said, your book covers a lot of ground, but you've got this really great big section on ethics uh, in app design. And you mentioned us now, I didn't know that, but that you had a bit of a background in, in philosophy. And, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Um, people might be surprised to hear that there's an ethical dimension to app development. And if you could just talk for a couple of minutes about, about your approach to that, to explaining that to people. Sure. Well, it goes back to like post.com era um, when we started to crawl out of the ashes and people started to get under this idea about, you know, more distributed ubiquitous computing, but from that, all the data that we were generating, how we capitalize on that. So I worked on some big retail systems and 
I worked on one system, they're extremely resistant to a loyalty program, but then they're getting crushed by their competitors because the loyalty program is all about getting that data and, and trying to do a better job for your, the people that use your software services or whatever it is. And so what came out of that was then a lot of thoughts of, well, let's just collect the data and we'll do something with it. And I think that has been a real popular idea and what we're finding out now is, is that something that was done with it can be really bad the way data can be used against people and um, you know people will will wonder about the surveillance advertising systems and things that we have or they're probably pretty harmful for society and there's a lot of information out there that can be used for bad purposes by bad actors and um, so there were a lot of us that, a number of years ago that would say, well, you don't just collect the data because, you know, I, I was reading an article about a store that could tell whether a woman was pregnant or not before they knew. And there's no, there's nothing crazy about it from a technology perspective. It's just that we're able to get all of this data and categorize it and run lots of math really quickly. And we're pretty good at predicting certain kinds of things. And so there's a lot of implications around people's health and um, you know, what their personal views are. And you know, going from whether you belong to certain groups or whether you're worried about rights or things like that. But then there's just things like getting your data stolen and um, held for ransom and things like that. And so a number of years ago, we would be saying, you, know, you shouldn't be doing this, you shouldn't do this. And there were those of us where we would have lines where we didn't want to cross and we wouldn't work for certain organizations and that really made me think about ethics from a formal perspective like what do we mean and you know what is the right thing to do and you end up in some of these conversations with companies where moral relativism comes into play and they're like well in Canada we do this because it's the law of the land but we bribe government officials in this other country because that's the law of the land and it can get pretty tricky and difficult. Um, and so one of the things that I use in the book that I found is useful, it's not perfect, but it's a framework called ethical OS. And I think the key is we focus on the here and now and on the next, right? I want to build this thing because I see a gap. Either there's a feature or a whole app that needs to be developed because people need it and they want it and I can feel it and I know it and we can get this thing done and we get it out to market at the right time and it's gonna be a success and I'm gonna help people, but we don't think about the long-term. So we're, we're just not, that's not the kind of organization or the kind of industry we're in because, you know, well, we throw away the stuff we built today and we build new stuff tomorrow. But what we're seeing with, um, you know, dark patterns in design and um, people having their data used against them and, fiddling with algorithms and, you know, generating outrage and, you know, these kinds of things, we're starting to see these problems with addiction and, and other things. Those are long-term effects. And we were very much of the mind of, you know, just do it and worry about that later. And the later has come now. And so I like to look at frameworks, any framework that you can use that helps you look at the long-term. So ethical OS is one. And then I'm a big McLuhan head, Marshall McLuhan, he was an Albertan, you know, talked about media. And there's a, a 
an exercise I love to do with groups. It's called a tetrad and you look at the effects of media. So what does the new media do that's good essentially and that we like, but then what does it cause to go away? It can replace something that was nice or that we enjoyed in society or as humans and individuals. And then what happens when it reverses? Like it's not, you know, social media is great for connecting with my aunt and uncle and my long lost relatives, but then my long lost relatives are posting all this conspiracy theory stuff that's making my brain rot. Um, you know, then there's lots of things where it's like we, we have a good thing and there's too much of a good thing. We don't have mechanisms. And then we do that at scale and there can be a lot of problems there. And so there's, there's a number of frameworks. Ethical OS is, is, is number one in software. Um, and so I use it quite a bit, but it's, it's a good system of thinking that helps you kind of hang your hat on something that's measurable and you can agree. What are the values that we want to um, uphold as a team? And, and more importantly, what are the effects that we want to have on others? And then rather than, well, it's all relative anyway, or you know, do unto others as, as you would have them do unto you, you, you take it a step further to the platinum rule and do unto others as they would have them do, you know, or what they treat others the way they want to be treated essentially. But then really looking into the long term, like we're doing this thing and it's sticky and people like it, but could it hurt people in the long term or could something happen at scale? Or are we collecting data and we're not securing it well enough? And um, so I think that you can end up in endless debates. And if you have a project pedant that I mentioned, you know, someone who immediately moves to defining words and ending up in rhetorical contests rather than dealing with the problem, you will get nowhere without some kind of a framework. And so I think it's, it's important as a team to have discussions about what do we mean by ethics? What can we do that's measurable um, where we can compare what we're doing with where we want to be? And how do we want people to treat each other using our system? And how do we want to treat those people? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. You can see in, in the detail that you just went into now, but also the detail that you go into into this section in the book where you, you talk about things like definism, fallacy, and stuff like that, that like very hard won experience um, in very like sort of like down to earth contexts that, 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 you, that you've sort of learned these lessons and that you've got ways of not just learned them, but like really um, great ways of explaining them and making them clear to people. Um, and we do, we do have a bit of a hard stop for our interview today, but I just wanted to mention, you know, we just focused in on this one section of the book. It's just one chapter of many um, uh, and they all go into the same kind of detail in the same way, but in the different, different sort of, you know, things that the chapters are about. Um, and so if you want to get, if you like, you know, and if this is just, just an introduction to one part of a book that talks about a lot of different things, including um, uh, knowing your design material uh, and, um, you know, what it means to sort of like even just, just frame design. In the last part of the interview, um, when the guest is a lean pub author, um, the uh, selfish question that we say for the end of the interview is, um, and you've, you've been, you're kind of a bit, a little bit of an OG kind of lean pub author. You've been around for a long time. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and I wanted to ask you um, if there's one thing one magical feature we could build for you or one thing that you really hate about lean pub that you're always shaking your fist at us for that we could fix for you. Um, is there anything that you can think of that you would ask us to do? Um, I, I don't have any huge ask there. The, the UX is a little awkward. Like um, there's a lot of options. And so there could be some massaging on um, some of the workflows there. 
like I find myself hunting and pecking for things sometimes, um, but it, it's a great platform. What I like about it, and I remember I was talking, I started, I think I started three books on it, and then I did the tap into mobile application testing, and Brian Merrick was asking me about it, and I said, well, in theory, you know, like you just publish it as you go along, and I use, tech, I use a text editor, so I'm on a Mac, and I'm old school, I have BD Edit, and you know, I save it in Dropbox and I click a button to run a build script and it's there. I worked with another technical um, publication with a book that, with a co-author that kind of that didn't end up getting published. And it was technical focused, but we needed to use different kinds of, of tools and there were these scripts. And I spent half my time looking through Ruby and Perl scripts, debugging and, and so, this was just, you know, there's a simple markdown, um, extended markdown language, and, you know, I press a button and it does a build. That works the way I work as a technical person. I like to write in text editors. I always have. And so um, that's the part I, I really like and I hope sticks around. I know that a lot of other people, you know, they want to use their productivity software, they want online, and you're supporting and moving in that direction, which is, is wise. But for me, I like the simple OG features of LeanPub that attracted me there in the first place. And one of these days, maybe I'll actually use it as intended and not just look after a number of years, here's my giant tome. I loved how Merrick wrote where he'd write a chapter and release it and then he'd get feedback and he'd update the chapter and he'd have a new chapter. And he had this really nice cadence and it was like, well, you know, I can really buy into this and I, and I like to be, there with my fingers in the book as he's writing it. And you go back and you look at a chapter you're like, aha, that was my influence there. I helped him explain <laughs> yeah. that better. And that was a super cool, that's not, probably not everybody's um, cup of tea, but that was a really cool experience to go through with someone to, um, and he'd say, well, I, I'm doing more than I expected. I think, you know, I'm gonna raise the price of the book by 50 cents. And it, it was a really fun thing. So I think that people who are less wordy than me and work a little faster and can have that time like Brian did. It's like, that's the ultimate, I think, appeal of LeanPub is, is that people are growing a book and you're along for the ride. That's a really cool feature. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's funny, never, never is a long time, but I think there will never be a day when you can't use a text editor to write a LeanPub book. Um, um, oh, that's you know, reassuring. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the, the resident non-technical person and I write in Emacs. Um, you know, so that gives you any indication of, of, of our of devotion to sort of plain text technology or what have you. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much uh, for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you very much for publishing another book on LeanPub and another really great one. Well, thanks for the opportunity to speak today. And thanks so much for a great platform. And I'm looking forward to a new project, hopefully a little smaller next time. Thanks. Thank you. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.